I do hope that you had a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. Um, that was my prayer over you. Um, this week would be that regardless of what your context looked like, if it was a chaotic Christmas with kids running all over the place, or if it was a Christmas where there was maybe just one or two of you, that regardless, you would be full of joy and full of wonder at what Jesus Christ accomplished for you. And so that's just been my prayer for you all week long. So whether there were many Christmas presents under the tree or, or just a few, whether you hosted or you went somewhere else, whether, whether it was a, a big Christmas for you with lots of, of kids running about or if it was much more personal, whatever it was, that you would be full of the wonder and joy at what Jesus Christ accomplished for you. That's what it was for us. Ours was a little bit more chaotic. We hosted this year and there were a bunch of, of just kids running about. There was also a whole lot of hacking and coughing. Um, there was, we were all pretty much sick all week long. Um, with that said, Elizabeth was the most sick of us. And so as a result, she spent much of the week kind of sequestered away, which was a little bit of a bummer for her, but, but that's just the way it worked out this year. And so I ended up spending all week long with the kids <laughs> and played lots and lots of board games and dominoes and we went outside a couple days because a couple days this week it was like 60 degrees out. It was just gorgeous. Christmas Day, it was so nice out that we actually did a big bonfire outside. I don't know if that's going to become a regular thing for us, but that was something that we did this year. We also, I mentioned on Christmas Eve, uh, at our Christmas Eve service, which I absolutely loved. I just, I love the Christmas Eve service. That's something that maybe you're like, why do I have to come to church on Christmas? I love it. It's for me, I love it. And this Christmas Eve, I mentioned to you that uh, one of the, the things that we did this year was I watched lots and lots of Christmas movies. Any movie that I could find anywhere streaming that was in any way related to Christmas, we watched. And, and I really don't want you to judge me on that. That was just really helping us get through the great coughing Christmas of 2018. And so we watched everything. And, and one of the things I mentioned on Christmas Eve that I was struck by as I watched movie after movie after movie, and I won't even give you all the names of them, as I watched all of these Christmas movies, I was struck by the fact that Christmas is such a fragile holiday. Over and over and over again, in every single one of these movies, Christmas is hanging by a thread. And needs to be saved. One time it's saved by kids. One time it's saved by an adult who, well, maybe not pretending, thinks he's an elf. One time it was saved by kittens. Whatever you do, don't watch that one. That was terrible. Absolutely terrible. Kittens saved Christmas. Twice it was saved by, I'm saying, these are all the movies I watch. Twice it was saved by puppies. Okay. One time there was a Santa who was like arrested and put in jail and singing the blues in jail. And, and he was, it was Kurt Russell, jazzy Christmas Santa. It was the weirdest thing 
I've ever seen. But, but we watched almost every single one of them. And, and after it was done, I was just struck by, apparently, Christmas is such a fragile holiday. And after we had been watching all of these movies, I started feeling a little guilty. I started thinking, boy, I hope I'm not sending my kids mixed messages. Like, maybe they think that this is Christmas. So we're going to the grocery store, and I've got my kids with me, and we're heading in the front door, and the very nice lady who was greeting us at the door said, well, hello, kids. Did Santa bring you good presents for Christmas? And Asher looked at her and said, no. She said, no, I'm so sorry. She go, he goes, Santa doesn't exist. <laughs> and she looked devastated. And she goes, no, Santa exists. He totally exists. And Claire goes, no, no, he doesn't. And I'm like, I'm like, yes. Like Santa's sleigh will not fly on the deception of my kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going to deceive them in that, you know? And, and I'm walking away giving them high fives legitimately. First question I ask, though, is you don't do that at school, right? Like, <laughs> we don't want to be the kids because that would make me the villain in all of the movies. And we can't have that. And so I'm like, no, 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 okay, so you do that here, and my son's like, no, but I've got a friend who believes in the tooth fairy, and I'm like, you just let her believe, buddy, you let her believe, and he's going to do that. He said, I'll just smile anytime she mentions the tooth fairy, and this is, this is kind of as we were going through Christmas this year, as I was kind of walking through this with my kids and, and kind of focusing on these things, I just thought and was struck by how in our culture, Christmas seems to be such a fragile thing. We're going to finish up this series called On the Way today. And I know Christmas is over. My grandpa used to say, every Christmas day, right around 4 or 5 o'clock, it became a thing till the day he died. He said, every Christmas, Christmas is over and it's a good thing. So Christmas is over and I know that it's over. I know that it's in the past. But I want to go back to On the Way for one more week, and I want to read the very last story we find in Scripture that is about this little town of Bethlehem. It happens after Christmas. So if you would grab your Bibles today. The story we're going to read is about somebody who legitimately tried to kill Christmas. So this is a bummer of a story. Let me tell you that right off the bat. I'm so glad you joined us today. My goal is to depress you. So um, this is a story of somebody who tried to kill Christmas, but unlike Ebenezer Scrooge or the Grinch, he's real. And this is what he really did. And so if you would grab your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 2 today. Matthew chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, there are some that are spread out all across the seats in this room. And uh, if you would grab one of those Bibles, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. Our gift to you. Grab the Bible, and if you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 807, uh, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 1 for what we are calling Killing Christmas. Killing Christmas. Chapter 2, verse 1, the very last story we find in Scripture about Bethlehem. Here's what it says. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Let me pause there real quick. What's great about this, that this is happening in the days of Herod the king, is that this immediately sets for us when Jesus' birth happened. Because we have a pretty good idea of when Herod the king died. And that was in 4 B.C. And if that's accurate, that means that Jesus' birth happened shortly before 4 B.C. Okay? That's when Jesus was most likely born, if we have that date right. When it says Herod the king, this is referring to Herod the Great. Now, it seems like in the gospel, everybody and their mom is called Herod. Like, literally, there is one mom in here whose name is Herodias. And there are multiple other Herods as well. There's Herod Antipas, who is the ruler of Galilee. And then there's Herod Agrippa, and there's Herod Agrippa II. Those are all descendants of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the first of them. Herod Antipas was his son. Herodias would have been his granddaughter. Herod Agrippa I would have been his grandson. Herod Agrippa II would have been his great-grandson. The family of the Herodian family was, a, was in control or in power for four generations, and then that's it. But Herod the Great would have been the first. says he's the king, and he is. But he is not king because he's a descendant of David. In fact, he's not even Jewish. Says he's Idumean, which means that he's from one of the tribes to the south, probably means that he's an Edomite. So he is not even Judah, Jewish, and yet he is called king of the Jews. He's called king of the Jews because of the fact that the Roman Senate declared in 40 BC, they voted, and when they voted, they said he is now king of the Jews. The reason why they declared him as king of the Jews is because he did some things very well. His dad was just an administrator, middle manager, I guess you could call him. But Herod was really, really good at pacifying the Jews. The way he did that before he became king was he killed the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans were the ones who were in power before the Herodians. They're the Maccabees. They're the ones who kicked out the remnants of the Greek empire from this area. And when they kicked them out, they were the rebels. Uh, Rome comes in, you don't want rebels in control. So they said, we got to do something about this. Herod came along and very kindly killed all the Hasmoneans for them. And so they said, let's vote him in as king of the Jews. So Herod the Great becomes king of the Jews in 40 BC. There are a few things that he is known for. Number one, he's known for building things. He builds lots of things. Well, not him personally. Under his leadership, many things are built. One of them, of course, is the temple in Jerusalem. And, and Herod is shrewd. I mean shrewd. He is smart. When he is dedicating the, the temple in Jerusalem, the prayer that he prays is almost directly the prayer that Solomon prayed when he was dedicating the temple. He is connecting his kingship with the kingship of Solomon. Very shrewd. But he was also known for killing. How you become king is how you stay king. And so he killed, and he killed a lot. He had ten wives. He killed two of them. I mean, he was like the Henry VIII of Israel. He was Herod VIII, I guess you could call him. He killed two of his wives. The wife he loved more than any other, her name was Miriam. Miriam, he killed her mother-in-law, 
and he killed her father-in-law. He named her, her brother the chief priest, but then got tired of him and killed him too. After a while, he killed Miriam too. And that's the point at which most historians believe Herod went crazy, legitimately, because he loved Miriam, and somebody started some rumors that made him kill her. Many years later, 7 BC, this is right before Jesus would have been born, when Herod is near the end, he's on his last leg and somebody starts a rumor that two of his sons are trying to usurp his throne, the two sons that are from Miriam, and so he orders them strangled to death. Caesar Augustus himself said of Herod, it is better to be Herod's sow, his pig, it is better to be Herod's sow than his son. When he was on his deathbed, he realized that nobody was going to mourn for him. <laughs> and so what he did was he gathered up one person from each of the leading families, the Jewish families. He gathered one member from each of them, put them in jail in Jericho, and left instructions that on the day he died, he wanted every single one of them killed too. In his words, they may not cry for me, but at least they'll cry. This is Herod the Great, the king of the Jews. And this is the guy who here at the end of his life as he is, near the end, on his last leg, this story begins. So it is in the days of King Herod, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I've read this many times. And almost every time I've read it, I've thought, for being wise men, they don't seem very wise. That they go to King Herod and ask, hey, so where's the one who's born king of the Jews? Right? Because Herod was not born king of the Jews. He's not even Jewish. He wasn't born king of anything. He was born just as Herod. He was named. He was voted. He was appointed as king of the Jews by a, a, a group of people who probably never set foot in this land, thousand miles away, in Rome. And so they come to him and they say, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? When he was born, he was already king of the Jews. And Herod goes, well, I don't have any new sons. It can't be one of mine. We've got a problem. So they come to him and they ask, where's the one born king of the Jews? And most likely, and I, I used to think, man, they're not very wise, but where else would they have gone? Like, where else would they check first? Of course you're going to go to the palace first. Of course you're going to go to the current king of the Jews and check to see if he's got any new sons who were born recently. But even if Herod had a son who was born, he would not have been born king of the Jews. He would have been had to have been appointed by Rome. And so that would happen after Herod is 
dead. And so it hasn't happened yet. They go to him. Who is the, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The word worship here is the word for lay prostrate before him. For Persians, if you were greeting somebody who was on the same level as you, you know, kind of socially, you would kiss them on the lips. Nowadays, that's frowned upon. If it was somebody who was just above you in social standing, you would kiss them on the cheek. But if it was somebody who was so ridiculously above you, what you would do is you would fall to the ground and kiss the ground. That's the word they use here. This is what they have come to do for this one who is born king of the Jews. We came to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was shaken. He was all shook up. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Pulls from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is what we read on Christmas Eve, this prophecy that immediately they know. He calls up the religious leaders, the scribes, he calls them together and says, hey, where is this going to be born? Immediately they go to uh, um, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and, and bring it out and say, this is, this is where he's going to be. He's going to be in Bethlehem, which is only six miles away from Jerusalem, but may even be closer than that. Because Herod's palace, his favorite palace, was actually outside of Jerusalem, just outside Jerusalem. It was only about three miles from Bethlehem. It was beautiful. It was called Herodium. He named it after himself. His palace was named Herodium. It was huge. Could house a thousand soldiers for a year and all of his family. It had all the stores of food and water and everything he could need. It was built on a man-made hill. In fact, we have a picture of the of them trying as they're digging it up. This is Herodium. It is it is this it looks like as you're looking at it, it looks like a like a volcano from level with the ground. As you look at it from the distance, it's seven stories tall. This massive palace that he had built called Herodium. It was his favorite palace. It was the palace that when he died, he was buried here. So from Herodium, you can actually see Bethlehem. From Bethlehem, you can look in the distance and you can see Herodium. Still to this day, you can see it. And this may have been where they were. So I kind of picture even as they're coming and they're saying, hey, where is he to be born? And he gathers up all these scribes and religious leaders and he Hears that he's going to be in Bethlehem, that he glances out the window and looks at the little town in the distance, Bethlehem. He says, huh. Okay. Well then. He summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently 
for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and, again, that same word, lay prostrate before this new king. So Herod himself, who just had his two sons strangled to death, is going to come and lay prostrate before this new king. He says, oh, I want to come and worship him as well. And I wonder if at this point the wise men are like, okay, sure you are. You know, I don't know. I, I wonder how, how this all went down. But verse 10, I can picture this now. I used to always wonder how this must have worked, but now I can picture it. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced, ex- or sorry, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen Uh, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. I always wondered, a star moving, but I can picture this happening now. And uh, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I kind of picture it like either they're walking out of Herodium or they're coming out of Jerusalem, and, and for whatever reason, they're looking and walking towards Bethlehem, and maybe when they see it in the distance, the light's kind of burning in this little town, and One of them points up and says, remember that star? It's directly above Bethlehem. And they have this moment of clarity where everything kind of snaps together and they go, ah, we're there. We're going to find him now. And they have exceeding joy, it says. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. And worshipped him. They lay prostrate before him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts and gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they reported to their, or departed to their own country by another way. So they're warned in a dream, it says, which happens, which happens a lot. In fact, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He's about to set his soldiers on a search and destroy mission for this child. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, a lot of times when we picture Joseph and Mary and Jesus heading off to Egypt, we think they must have gone all by themselves and there was no one else around for them. In reality, by this point, we know for a fact that in just one city, the city of Alexandria, that there were living in Egypt about a million Jewish people that had all kind of fled their hometown and hometowns and homeland and had settled in Egypt over the last uh, however many hundred years. And so Egypt was known as a haven for the Jewish people. And, and that's just in one city in Alexandria, but all over Egypt at this point, that was the case. But it says that Joseph is warned in a dream by an angel again. He heads off to Egypt and, and he waits there. And then when he comes back, he fulfills what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son, which is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Already we've had Micah chapter 5, verse 2 fulfilled, so we've got two prophecies now. 
that have been fulfilled. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken, spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here I'm not going to pause long because this is brutal. This is painful, especially as a parent. And imagining what these mothers must have been going through that night and these families must have gone through that night it's it's kind of a painful thing and and I don't know about you but Christmas Eve here at praise when we were reading the Christmas story we didn't include this part and Christmas Eve night when I went home and I read this story with my kids I read right up to this part and I stopped And we're big fans of the nativity scene, and we always include that as part of our Christmas decorations, multiple in our house. And I go to those nativity scenes, and I look at them, and all the shepherds, and all the wise men, and the sheep, and the donkey, and all the cool things that are in that nativity, and never once is this included in a nativity scene. This is painful. This is dark. This is the kind of thing that we don't like to talk about at Christmas. I don't know if you know this, but today is actually the slaughter of innocence day on the high church calendar. So, so that's a great name for a Sunday, I suppose. But it's the day at which, though, you're supposed to pause afterwards and remember this fact. So it's so appropriate that this is the story that we are ending on the way on. But it's painful, and we don't like to talk about it. But it is as much a part of the Christmas story as the angels and the dreams and the visions and the songs and the wise men and the shepherds. This is also a part of it. Herod, trying to wipe out Jesus, has all of these two-year-old and younger boys killed. While Joseph and Mary and Jesus are hiding out in Egypt. And it says, as a result, it fulfills this prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So another dream, another angel appearing to Joseph and saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, And go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Um, When Herod died, Caesar Augustus named three of his sons to succeed him. Instead of one of them getting the whole chunk of it, he split it into three. One was Philip, one was Archelaus, who's about to be read, we're about to read about him, and the third was Herod Antipas, who's the one who shows up later in 
when Jesus is headed towards the cross in his trial. Herod, of Ant Herod Antipas is there. He's also there with John the Baptist as well. But not one of them is named king. Instead, Caesar Augustus names them tetrarchs. And a tetrarch was what you named someone when they didn't get the full kind of glory of being a king. It was like a governor of a sort. And the best interpretation that we could think of today would be like, it's similar to being a quarter king. Like that's the best name that you could come up with it. They were quarter kings. And each of these were kings and or quarter kings instead of being full kings. And Archelaus ruled Judea and Antipas ruled up in the northeast in Galilee. And, and then Philip was in the north uh, west. And, and here it says that when they're coming back, you've got a problem. Because when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, Archelaus is as bad as Herod, except without the shrewdness. Okay? Herod, before he died, one of the last things he did was he killed two religious leaders, teachers, who had a big following. Kind of left Archelaus with a mess on his hands in Judea. And Archelaus, all he's ever seen his dad do is just kill. So he's like, what am, what am I going to do to put down this little rebellion? And so he waited until Passover when there were 3,000, or there were more than that in, in, Judah, in Jerusalem, and he gathered up 3,000 of them, lined them up, and had them all killed. At this point, Rome realizes, wait a second, our whole goal is to pacify, and they're not doing a good job anymore, so they take Archelaus, and they exile him to Gaul, and they set up their own guy, who, be, who uh, essentially by the time of Jesus being Going to the cross, that guy was Pilate. That's why Pilate was in charge of Judea instead of one of Herod's sons because Archelaus failed so miserably. But at this point, they hear that Archelaus is ruling in Judea and so being warned in a dream again. Another dream, another angel, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was what was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So one more prophecy fulfilled here in the story. There are four of them total. I read this story and there's a few things that kind of pop out at me. Number one, is how big of a role angels play in it. In fact, in the whole birth narrative, angels play a major role. Like, hark the herald, the angel sings. They're the ones who announce it to the, to the shepherds. They're the ones who tell Mary that it's going to happen in the first place. They're the ones who talk to, to Joseph. They're the ones who talk to Zechariah. They show up all through the story. And just in this one, over and over and over again, there's dreams and there's, and there's these angels showing up time and time again. In fact, in the New Testament, you find the story of angels as much. Did you know that it actually says angel in the New Testament more than it says the word sin? Did you know that the Greek word angelos, angel, is actually used more times in the New Testament than the word agape? Angels are all through it, and their fingerprints are all over this story. And here's what they're not doing. 
These angels are not going about Bethlehem or around the country saying, you need to believe in Jesus. Because if you have enough belief in Jesus, his sleigh will fly. These angels are not doing that. As you read this story, the angels are announcing, they are declaring, they are speaking and giving direction all through the story. And this seems to be a story where it seems like Christmas is hanging by a thread. But even if you remember this, when, when, when Peter is, pulls out his sword because Jesus is being arrested, Matthew 26, verse 53, and he pulls out his sword, his little sword, and he's going to defend Jesus. And Jesus says, don't, don't you understand, Peter? In a moment, I could call down 12 legions of angels to defend me if I wanted to be defended. 12 legions would be 72,000 angels. And in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36, it talks about what one angel can do. And one angel in Isaiah 37, 36 defeats 185,000 men. Now, if you take those numbers, 72,000 times 185,000 men, that's 13 billion or something like that which is almost twice the current population of earth. So when you think about the power that was at the beck and call of Jesus Christ, in a moment he could have called that sort of power to his side. Christmas was never fragile. It was never hanging by a thread. Now let's be clear. When Jesus came to this earth, his kingdom invaded, okay? And when his kingdom invaded, the kingdom of darkness is pushing back. And you see that even from his birth. If that's not what this story is about, I don't know what it is about. And yet throughout it, there is not a moment where Herod has a chance to win. He's sitting there on his little man-made hill, looking down at Bethlehem and this boy who was born king, thinking, how can I defeat him? And he never, ever, ever has a chance. The more he tries, all he does is fulfill prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. All through the story, every time Herod tries something, it just results in the fact that Jesus Christ's right to rule and reign is even established more fully right? Every time a prophecy is fulfilled, you go, okay, okay. He does have the right to rule. He has the right to rule by being born. He has the right to rule by worship. He has the right to rule by fulfilled prophecy. And every time that, that Herod is doing his best to undo what God is doing, all he's doing is better establishing that Jesus Christ came as the one true king. And he wasn't a king who was voted in. And he's not a king who came to just pacify. He came to bring peace. And he was born king. From the moment he was born, he was already king of the Jews. And the more Herod tries to hold on and control his little kingdom and establish and hold on to his throne and say, I'm king of this land, the more and more it splinters. Because Jesus Christ did come to be king 144 times in the Gospels. 
It talks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what Jesus came to establish. 35 times in the gospel it talks about Jesus as king. Another 10 times it says that Jesus came to reign. Over and over and over again, we see that this is what Jesus came to do. And no matter how hard Herod pushes against it, he never, ever had a chance. Because any one of those angels that were just speaking in dreams could have turned this thing about in a moment. That's the story of Herod trying to undo what God is doing. And what I would say that we need to take away from that is, and this is, I think, so vitally important, I think we have to be really careful not to reduce our faith to just getting a good parking spot when we go shopping for Christmas. Like, that's what Jesus came to do. That he just gives us a good parking spot when we pray and we need it. No. Jesus Christ came to invade this world. And the kingdom of the beloved son came to replace the kingdom of darkness. And still to this day, these two kingdoms are doing battle. And still to this day, the kingdom of darkness is, re is resisting and pushing back against the kingdom of his beloved son. And it is a battle over hearts, and it is a battle over minds. It is a battle over emotions. It is a battle over this whole world. But never once is the outcome in doubt. Never once does the kingdom of darkness ever have the upper hand. It pushes back, but King, but King Herod can stand on his little man-made tower of Babel, daring and daring and looking and staring at Jesus down in Bethlehem and think, oh, how can I stop him all day long? And he'll never come up with a plan that'll work. And what I love about this, Herod believed I mean, he paid lip service even to worship. He believed. I mean, it was the chief priests. It was the scribes. It was those who were the religious leaders who, man, when it came down to it, they were just indifferent. He calls them together and says, hey, where's the Christ going to be born? They said in Bethlehem. But then they don't ever go and check it out. Right? They don't, it's like, I don't know if they don't believe the scriptures, if they don't care, whatever it is. Herod believed for all the stuff he does wrong, for everything that in this story you look at and go, Herod, what are you doing? For all that he does wrong, he believes in Jesus. And it scares him. And that's the only reason why he reacts the way he does. He believes that this is maybe born the king of the Jews. Well, I better get that taken care of. For nothing else, he believed. But belief is not enough. He tries to hold to his kingdom. He tries to hold to his kingship. He tries to hold his little man-made pile of dirt. Say, this is mine. When Jesus Christ came to replace all of these things. 
and to come and rule and reign and be king. So we need to make sure that we don't just think that all it is that he came was to make sure that we get a parking spot. No, he came for everything. The other thing I think we should take away from this is the fact that the exact same thing that is happening from Herodium to Bethlehem happens every single day in our hearts. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 19, verse 14, when he's telling a parable about a king who's afar off, his citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Every single day, my heart cries out that exact same thing. And it's subtle, and it's not obvious. It's not as obvious as it was with Herod. But every single day, my heart starts the day in that exact same way. I do not want him to reign over me. And every single day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I need to make sure again, afresh and anew, that he does reign over me. Every day I have to lay before him again and lay prostrate before him and say, you are king. This kingdom, my heart, you reign over. I can't stand on my own little pile of dirt in my heart and say, I built this. This is mine. When in reality, all of it belongs to him. It's not enough to believe. It's not enough to pay lip service. Eventually, we must fall on our knees before him and say, you are king, you reign, you rule. That's what I read in this story. Never was it in doubt. Never was it hanging by a thread. But every day I have to make the decision afresh and anew that he reigns and rules again. What will I worship? That's the question I see here. Well, I'd be like Herod, stand on my own little tower of Babel and say, this is mine, belongs to me. Or will I give it to him and say, you and you alone are Lord. Would you stand with me today? Here's how I want to end. I want to end just by praying again. Because I think this is the battle. This is the struggle. This is the thing every single day that must be dealt with. Every day we need to come to this exact same point because what Herod did, we all try to do. It happens subtly. But we try to retake control of that which belongs to him and him alone. And may we know that we are a part of the battle that is happening between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of his beloved son. And every day we are a part of that battle. That means that there are struggles. That means that there are things happening. But the kingdom of God is still advancing every single day in hearts and in minds all over this world. Right now, there are missionaries who are imprisoned. I was just reading this week about another pastor in China. The biggest church in China was shut down a few weeks ago. The pastor was taken and thrown in jail because they wanted to set up cameras in the auditorium in order to see everybody and who's there and they said no we will not allow it they shut him down put him in prison 
This battle is still going. But let's be clear that the outcome is never, ever in doubt. The only way Christmas is fragile is if you remove Christ and it's just a fat guy in a red suit. It's the only way Christmas will ever be fragile. This story was not as Christmas was hanging by a thread. This is a story of God moving through his people, in his people, through his servants, all through it. And never once does the enemy have a chance. This is the story for each and every one of us. For you in here, if you are in here and you've never declared Jesus Christ as king, thinking that maybe it was just enough to know the truth. Herod knew. Herod paid lip service. It's not enough. We must declare him as king, as Lord of our lives. Real, true belief goes that far and bows before him. And that's the story for us today as well. If you're in here, I'm going to pray in just a moment. And as I do, I would encourage you to pray that prayer along with me. And to just commit your heart to him. Say, you are Lord over this. You are king over this. I will not try to hold to it and cling to it. Because all my control will just splinter. But I hand it over to you. Would you pray with me today? Father, as we read this story, it is a dark story. It's not a story that we regularly at least enjoy reading around Christmas. It's a story of the kingdom of darkness pushing back even as you began, as you were invading this world. But all that you were doing in Bethlehem led to this point. All that you were doing in preparing for Jesus Christ to come is about what happens inside of our hearts. It's not enough that Jesus just came and we know it. The only way it's enough is if we come before him and lay prostrate before him and say, you are king of my heart. And this is something that must be decided every single day. But today, oh Lord, for any in here who have never declared you as king of their lives, I just declare with them right now, you are king today of my heart. You are Lord today of my heart. I believe today that you are who you said you are. I declare that you are king. And God, I just pray that you would truly lay hold of our hearts. Advance in our hearts just as you are advancing in this world. Move in us today, I pray. And may all of us in here right now, every single day, make this same decision that you will be Lord today. That you will be King today. May we not hold to it. May we not try to keep what belongs to us or we think we belongs to us but instead God just hand it off to you as we finish this story in this final story of all that happens in Bethlehem may we glory at what you did through the generations in preparation for Christ and may we re- <coughs> respond in the name of Jesus we thank you for it in the precious name of Jesus amen amen Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're in here and you need prayer for anything this morning, our prayer team would just love to pray with you, not just today, but all week long. They've committed to pray with you this morning. And and if you're in here and you prayed for the very first time to make him king, Lord of your life, I would encourage you to just come as others are heading out the door in just a moment when I dismiss. 
to just come and, and to pray with them and share with them the decision you've made and they would just love to walk you through the next steps. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Make sure to be back next week as we kick off the new year and a new series. God bless you as you go today.